Good morning to all those who are here uh, and those who are joining us online. Uh, Shalom. My name is Tim Chang. I'm one of the pastoral staff here at the cathedral, uh, and I'm excited and uh, privileged to be sharing God's word with you. Before we do so, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know us all. You know how our week has been, how our past month has been. You know the difficulties that we face. Help us, O oh Lord, to not be swayed by our difficulties or be distracted by other priorities. Help us, Father, to see Jesus clearly to this passage that we're going to look through so that we may rightly know you, love you, and live for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin our time by asking one question. I want you to picture someone who is the greatest of all time that's alive today. Uh, as the young people nowadays like to call it, the GOAT, greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, GOAT. It may be a sportsman or sportswoman of their various sports. Uh, for me, I like basketball. That would be uh, Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. Uh, for football, it might be Ronaldo. I won't tell which one. You can take a pick which one, right? Uh, or even for squash, uh, women's squash, Datuk Nicole David. It may be in the era, uh, realm of business, of CEOs of trillion-dollar tech companies, like Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, which recently overtaken Apple as the most valuable company. It could be Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Meta, or even Tim Cook of Apple. It might even be world rulers of powerful nations, Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, Xi Jinping, Justin Trudeau, whichever goat that you're pushing, greatest of all time, I would suggest that these people are, are singular in their achievements. And as such, they are actually on another level than normal people like you and I, that they operate on a different plane, as it were, of existence. And that these, this picture, this person, is an example of this one word I want to introduce to you today, that is transcendence. That they, to be transcendent is to be beyond the normal range, uh, the, the range of normal human experience, to be transcendent. Now I'd like, to picture, I'd like you to picture a second person, another person. And this time is who's closest to you? The person who knows you best. The person who's dearest to your heart. Who loves you the most and whom you love the most. Now unlike the previous list that I asked you to picture, this person may not be around anymore. Yet their impact on your life still remains. Now this second person describes a, a different word. And that second word is imminence. To be imminent means to be from within, to be close and intimate, intimately knowable. Now, these are two seemingly opposite concepts, transcendence and imminence. And why are these two, two separate concepts? Because for most of us, if you're like me, you were imagining two different people for each of those questions, isn't it? But in our passage today, we'll be seeing how these two concepts, these two words, transcendence and imminence, are combined in the person of Jesus. And that, that, that is combined in his one title of Emmanuel. And we see how Matthew introduced us to Jesus as, uh, in, in verse 1, when, when Jesus is born, he says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The transcendent God with us together. Now, Matthew's gospel was meant to show us that Jesus is the Savior, is God's Savior of the Old Testament, that, he, that Jesus will bring in God's kingdom. 
So where are we right now in Matthew's Gospel? We're in chapter 14. A lot of things have happened. So there's a progression of God's kingdom here from Jesus announcing God's kingdom in chapters 4 to 7. That's in the Sermon of the Mount. It's followed by Jesus displaying the power of the kingdom, power over leprosy, over demons, over storms, even over death in chapters 8 to 10. And there's this one section here about responses to the kingdom, responses of faith and unbelief in verses, uh, chapters 11 to 12. And last December, over Advent, we looked at chapter 13 where Jesus introduced us, taught us a bit more about how God's kingdom will be like in the parables of the kingdom. And now we have, having done the parables, we are into a new section of responses, further intensifying of rejection and further intensifying of belief. Last week, Bishop Paul Barker brought us through rejection, how Jesus was rejected in his hometown, rejected by the likes of King Herod. And that was last week. This week, we'll see Jesus being accepted. And true enough, next week, in chapter 15, we'll see more, more rejection. So that's where we are. Our passage in Matthew 14, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, we will see Jesus display his power, as we just read in the gospel reading just now, two great miracles of feeding 5,000 and walking on water. Uh, this is well-known, uh, if you've been in Sunday school any amount of time, these two well-known stories of Jesus' power. But if we note this passage, these two displays of transcendent power are actually bracketed, beginning and end, with two stories of compassion, of Jesus' imminent co uh, compassion to heal the sick. So that's how I'll be structuring my, my, my sermon today. We'll be first looking at Jesus' compassion, and we see how his compassion weaves through even his displays of power, that Jesus is both transcendent and imminent. And my hope for us today is to learn that Jesus is the compassionate Emmanuel who provides and delivers. So let's look first in verse 13. Follow me in verse 13. You can follow the sermon outline either, uh, provided in the service order, and the passage will be up on the text, on the screen. Now in verse 13, remember, uh, what just happened in verse 12 was that Herod beheaded John and he thought Jesus was this John the Baptist, that this means bad news for Jesus that's operating in Herod's kingdom. So in response to that, Jesus withdrew to a desolate place. What's clear here in verse 13, Jesus wanted some alone time. But what happened? He left alone uh, to get some alone time in a boat. When the boat arrived on the shore, what happened? There was a large crowd waiting for him. And his alone time was interrupted. Now, if that was you, how would you feel? Uh, as a father of two young kids, uh, seven and five, many a time after a long day of ministry, after a long stressful day, uh, I just want to just sit down, just think of nothing, relax for a bit, calm, wind down, right? have a bit of peace and quiet. And when my kids at that moment choose to get at each other's throats in front of me, like, oh. and uh, as a weak human being, I lose my temper and I get annoyed because my, my precious time I thought I could have to myself was interrupted. Now, if we're being fair, that's like most of us. If we get alone time and something interrupts that, oh, God, God save the person who interrupts us in that time, isn't it? But that's not how Jesus responds. He responds with compassion, as we see. He heals their sick. So far, far from being annoyed, Jesus is compassionate. And again, we see Jesus' compassion at the end of the passage. So follow me all the way, skip past the miracle, all the way to verse 34. Okay? 
um, to verse 36. There's a typo on the slides. Okay, for 36, yes. Now, in between the two great miracles, right? Trust me, we're going to get into it. But Jesus and his disciples had a long day. They didn't sleep at all the night, right? They had a very long and tiring day. And again, when the boat reached the shore, there was a crowd. <laughs> this time it's a recommendation. Oh, Jesus is here. Let's bring everyone we know. And they're waiting for him. And what we see here, that they, 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 they came to him, they brought all their sick, and they begged him, let us just touch the fringe of your garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Literally here, it's not healed, it's saved. As many as touched it, they were saved. These people, they were desperate for Jesus. They, they recognized Jesus can save. And in their desperation, they recognized only he can save me. The doctors can't save me. We need to bring our sick to him. They came to him. They implored him. And what they found was his compassion. And this leads us to our first principle. Jesus, who is powerful, has compassion for our weakness. Both crowds are desperate. Both were looking for Jesus. Both knew they needed Jesus. And when they came to him, what they found was his compassion. Now, interestingly enough, it's not recorded here, but do you know who was not healed? It was those who said, oh, maybe let me not trouble the rabbi. Maybe he looks a bit tired. I won't trouble him. Let me stay back. Those who didn't come to him were not healed. Only the desperate, the one who sought him out, were healed. So let me just pause a moment and ask a question of us. What is stopping us from coming to Jesus? I've, I've often heard it when I'm, when I'm talking to people, they say, I, I don't want to trouble God with my prayers. I, I feel like if I ask too much, I'll annoy him. Friends, God is a loving father who will not get annoyed. In fact, he desires that we come to him. That if we come to him with our requests, know that you'll be met with his compassion. Know that Jesus is the compassionate Emmanuel who provides and delivers. But friends, we come to him not with demands, right? We're not coming to him as if he is our servant. No, friends, we need to come to him acknowledging our desperate need of him. It's only right. We are all friends. What is our desperate need? It's the fact that we are all fatally sick, spiritually sick, because our default, our heart's default is to always be going away from God, to be ignoring God, to be forgetting God. Isn't that right? That none of us starts out wanting and yearning and desiring God. Friends, if God, the Bible tells us that God is a source of all goodness, the source of light, the source of life, and for us to be turning away from Him means we're turning towards what is evil, what is dark, and that path leads to death. And that kind of explains the world that we see out there. You don't need to spend long. Just spend five minutes on the news and you see a world full of strife, full of greed, full of selfishness. And if we're being honest with ourselves, that's just not something that happens in some land in the Middle East that happens in our hearts. We are part of the problem, friends. We are by nature turning away from God. Now, God is good. He will put an end to all that is wrong in this world. Make no mistake, he will destroy evil. And that means he's good. And God's destruction of what is evil is his wrath. It's known as his wrath. But our desperate situation, friends, is that by default we are in the wrath pile. That we're facing God's wrath. 
because of our inclination to turn away from him, because of our inclination to be selfish, to, to perpetuate death. And the good news then is that if we recognize our desperate need, that we can't get ourselves out of this, that we turn to him, Jesus, can you save me? Jesus, will you save me? We will find that his answer is yes. We will find his compassion, that he will save us. Just trust in him. Now, how will he save? And that's what we will see in our next sections. Let's continue on in verse 15. Now remember, Jesus was healing in compassion the crowds, right? And now it was evening, so presumably Jesus was spending the whole day till sunset healing the sick. And the disciples come to him, maybe in compassion they say, oh, Jesus is a desolate place, uh, let's send them back, right? Because there's no KKMA, there's no 7-Eleven around here, there's no way to get food, there's no mama, there's no 24-7 mama, there's no way to get food, Jesus, let's send them back. But they didn't know what Jesus had in store. Jesus told them in verse 16, they don't need to go away, you give them something to eat. So here, Jesus is testing them. Jesus wants them to realize they can't do anything about it. Jesus wanted them to realize their desperate situation. I can't give anything, Jesus. We only have five loaves and two fish. So what happens? You see, five loaves, we know there's two small uh, barley loaves, like small buns, enough to feed a small child. If they had held on to that five loaves and two fish, it wouldn't be enough to feed all 12 disciples, let alone 5,000 people. But you see, they gave it to Jesus and we saw how Jesus used it to feed all the crowd of more than 5,000 people. Now let me pause for a moment here and let me ask us a question. What is Jesus asking us to be giving to him that we're holding on to very tightly? Because we're not wanting to let go because it seems that we have so few, that there's scarcity, the scarcity mindset of it. I don't have much, oh Lord. I don't have much. If I give this little bit, I'll have nothing left. Besides, God, what good could this little do? Let me just keep it just for me. Friends, if you hold on to it, it may help you a little bit, or maybe it won't help you at all even. But if you give it to Christ, you see what he can do with it. If you give to God your time, if you give to him your attention, to devote yourself to the things of God, to be thinking of who needs your help, to be having that awareness of, of help, of, of giving it to Christ by helping others around you, especially those in the community of faith. Would you give of what little you have, time, resource, attention, trust him with it, and see what he does next? Now let's keep on ahead to the end of that passage where we see what happened is that they ate and they were satisfied. More than 5,000 people. 5,000 men, not including women and children. Definitely more than 5,000. And we see that this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, was recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That the disciples, when they thought of, how am I going to prove that Jesus is a savior, the savior of the world, they all included this one miracle. And, and this miracle is impacting them. And it's not like, a miracle like uh, my child, you give them one, one biscuit at the back of the car seat and suddenly from one biscuit you see a million crumbs all over my car. No, it's not like that. Jesus made five small loaves and he ended up with 12 baskets of leftovers. 
Some people like to say, that, oh, maybe there were some crumbs and from that small crumb they were satisfied. Or maybe the, the, the boy gave of his generosity and people felt touched to give also of their lunch. None of that is true. Because from five small loaves, we have 12 baskets of leftover. In our Old Testament reading, we saw in 2 Kings 4 of Elisha's miracle of feeding 100 men with 20 loaves. And we see Jesus did on another transcendent level, five loaves, 5,000 people. And if we look back to our New Testament reading in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, we see this, Jesus, this hymn here is referring to Jesus, is God who created all things. He sustains all of creation. He's before him in all things, and in him all things hold together. If this is who Jesus is, this is how transcendent he is, surely it's not too difficult to believe that he could do this. Remember, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. That he demonstrated his transcendent power of creation, but he used it to feed, to satisfy the needs of those who were there. And this leads us to our second principle, and that is Jesus, who sustains all of creation, mercifully provides for our needs. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God, give us this day our daily bread. Indeed, it is right, friends, to turn to God with our needs for, for provision, because He is the Lord, our provider. That's his, one of His titles, isn't it? But when we look back earlier in Matthew, Matthew acknowledges the same thing. God knows our need. And in Matthew 6, 31 to 33, he tells, us, tells his, uh, the, the crowd, don't be worried about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Don't be worried about the physical things in this earth because God, our Father, knows you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Friends, God knows what we need. And yes, we do need to be asking him when we have a need. But we need to acknowledge also that our greatest need is not for stuff. It's not for more stuff. Our greatest need is not for life to go smoothly with no trouble. That's what we mostly pray for, isn't it? Friends, if that is all our prayer requests are, we have missed the point. That our greatest need is God himself. We need to seek first him so that we, he will meet our needs. Our greatest need is for God himself. And Jesus provides for this need, this greatest need, because he is a compassionate Emmanuel who provides and delivers. And how he, made, he provides for this is that he made a way for us to be saved from God's wrath, as we told just now. And we're saved to eternal life by the giving of himself. Now, I mentioned that this one miracle was uh, written in all four Gospels. Let's turn to a parallel passage of the feeding of 5,000 in the Gospel of John for a bit, in chapter 6. Now, in, John records for us a different response of the crowd. The crowd uh, sees the miracle of the feeding of uh, five loaves to 5,000, and they want to make Jesus king by force. Yes, he will be our leader, he will rule, he, we will never grow hungry. Amazing. But Jesus' re response to them is this. You're seeking me, you want me, not because of these miracles, but you, because you want more food. You want stuff. And Jesus is telling them, don't work for that which perishes, friends. The stuff of this life, of these things, of this earth, will perish. Everything will have an expiry date. It will perish. Work for food that endures to eternal life. 
And what is this food that gives eternal life? Let's continue on in the same passage to verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread. Jesus is that which sustains to eternal life. And the bread that which I give for life is my flesh. And we saw this. How did he give us this bread? By giving his body to be nailed to the cross. Friends, the cross, far from being a decorative element, the cross is a sign of execution. It's a punishment for the worst criminal. And it represents God's wrath to punish the worst criminal. And that is the cross. That Jesus went to the cross, not because he deserved it, friends, but because he knew that we deserved to be there. That we incurred God's wrath. So Jesus stood in our place and that he bore completely the brunt of God's wrath. That he absorbed it completely. That when we believe in him, God unites us with him. That what we deserve, his wrath, has been united with that punishment that Jesus endured so that there's no more punishment left for us. And therefore, that we are freed to approach him. That God knew that there's no way we could satisfy his wrath without being perished ourselves. We're doomed. And therefore, Jesus satisfied God's wrath in our place. So like I said, we are free to face God without wrath, but rather to be satisfied by him. And we'll see how uh, next, how Jesus not just provides, but also delivers us. And let's continue on in our story. So next we see after the feeding, he dismisses everyone. And finally, we see Jesus get his alone time to pray. But what happens next in verse uh, 20, the next part of verse 23? Evening came. Uh, this is past sunset, maybe 6, 7 p.m. Jesus was alone. Where was his disciples? They were rowing the boat far away, uh, beating by the waves, and the wind was against them. Again, in John uh, chapter 6, verse 19, he tells us that they are five kilometers from shore, 25 to 30 stadia, which is about 5 km for us. And how long were they rowing? We, we see next in verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now picture this. The disciples were seasoned fish. Some of them were seasoned fishermen. For example, like John, who wrote John's gospel, he's a fisherman, and, and therefore he can note how far they were. And he was not, why does he know this for a fact? Because he was looking. The shores five came away. Row, 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 row. Look again. It's still five came away. Row, 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 row again. It's still five came away. We are going nowhere, friends. And how do they know that it was the fourth watch of the night? In all the Gospels that record the time, it's consistent. Fourth watch of the night. Why? Friends, the, there, there are only four watches in the night, according to the Roman system. This means it's 3 to 6 a.m., right before morning. They will only know it's the fourth watch with hindsight. For example, let me give you an example. Uh, when my children are still young, there were often times in which we have sleepless nights. Uh, either they're sick, they'll vomit, they'll throw up, and then we'll oh, throw up on the bed again, okay, and, and I'll be very blurred. I don't check my phone, I just clean the mess up, and then I just, okay, everything clean, everything settled, and I just go to sleep. Then I close my eyes for 10 minutes, and then the next thing I know it, I hear uh, 6 a.m., uh, the surah across from my house start praying. Okay, it's 6 a.m. That means I just cleaned the bed maybe at 5.30. You see? I only know that with hindsight. In the midst of cleaning, I had no idea. Was it 1 a.m., 2 a.m.? I had no idea. It was still night. The disciples had no watches. They didn't have an Apple Watch. They had no, no clocks. They wouldn't know. They would have been rowing with no idea how long it would take. 
that the winds was against them the whole way. Now, imagine, have we been in that moment where the night just seems never to end, that the waves just never seem to stop coming, that as the waves come along, as troubles come along, we don't see as if anything is changing. We pray, but we're met with silence. We look and we see nothing changing, no hope. Despair sets in. Have you been there? Are you there right now? And in those moments, let me tell you, in your head, you know what is right. The disciples knew Jesus. They, they knew that Jesus has calmed the storm before. They have seen Jesus display creation power to create bread. But in the midst of the storm, when the waves are crashing down, the waves are more real than the memory of faith. They despaired. How do we know? Because when Jesus came to them, they didn't recognize him, as we'll see in verse 26. They were terrified and they thought he was a ghost, that they have given up hope. When they saw Jesus, they didn't see salvation because all this while they were telling themselves, we're doomed, we're doomed. And maybe over time, you believe it too. So when Jesus shows up, they're not thinking of salvation, they're thinking of their doom and they cry out in fear. But what does Jesus do in verse 27? Immediately, he says to them, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Literally here, it is I. It's just two words, I am. And those of you who know the Old Testament, you know that was the name by which God introduced himself. I am the great I am. And Jesus is telling them, your God is here. Take heart. And what we see next in verse 28 to 29 is something really special because only Matthew records it for us. It's a small story involving Peter. So Peter wants to be with Jesus. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to be with you and I'll be on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter goes out and he walks on the water. I think Peter's the only other human being to ever do this, record it for us, right? But what happens in verse 30? When he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. Maybe for a split second, Peter, uh, his, uh, that moment when he saw the wind, his experience as a fisherman began to speak into him. Maybe he was thinking, I've seen this type of wind before. This wind has capsized boats. Maybe he was even thinking, I saw a friend's boat capsized to such waves before. And his experience overrided his faith that he took his eyes off Christ and he began to sink. And friends, isn't this relatable? When the troubles set in, even though Jesus is right there, even though help is right there, when the waves come, we, we are maybe we've been hurt before. Maybe we've been scared before. It's so easy to give in to our fears. And the moment we do so, we may give in to our fears, to the lies that the enemy would tell us about what is not true, and we take our eyes off Christ, we too will begin to sink. And that is the moment that is very important for us to do what Peter did, which is to turn to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand to hold of him, saved him, rebuked him a little bit. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, Peter had no reason to doubt or hesitate because uh, he just witnessed, he knows Jesus' power to save. He had no reason. But far from being a rebuke, I would suggest that this is a great comfort to us. Why? Because there are moments, even for myself, where I know that I should have known better, where I know the gospel. I know that God will save me. I know. But there are times in which we fail. 
that we still get afraid, that we still sink. But the comfort is that the moment we turn to Jesus, he is there with us, he grabs us, he holds on to us, and he brings us back into the boat. And what happens when they get into the boat? We see in verse 32. They got into the boat and the wind ceased. They got into the boat and the storm that they've been fighting the whole night just stops. And the timing is no coincidence to the disciples. As I mentioned before earlier in chapter 8, Jesus calms the storm. And what was their response then in Matthew chapter 8? They marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? this a man? How can a man control the elements, the waves, the wind, that they obey him? They marveled. But this time, they saw Jesus come in the boat and the storm goes away. They worshipped him. Don't miss this. These are monotheistic Jews. They only worship one God. They will not worship a man unless he was God. That they call him the son of God. This is a divine claim because there's no God but Yahweh. And in a, in a, in a world, in their worldview, where the son is the father, is equal to the father, the son will replace the next in line to the father to say that Jesus is the son of God and to worship him. This is a divine claim. With this display of divine power, Jesus walking on the water and stilling the storm by being there, there's no doubt that this could be no one but God alone. And we saw this in our psalm reading earlier. Let's look at Psalm uh, 107. They cried out to God in the trouble. Uh, if you go a bit, few verses earlier, they, they were tossed up by the waves up to the mountains and plunged down. They were staggering like drunken men. They turned to God in their trouble and he made the storm still and the waves of the sea were hushed. This is but one example in the Old Testament of God and God alone having uh, power over the storm. And this leads us to our last principle. That is Jesus who commands the storm mightily delivers us. Friends, the one who has power over the storm is the same one who grabs a hold of us. We can know that in the storms of life, he is with us and he will deliver us. Uh, as I was preparing to preach this, um, this passage, I didn't realize it, but God was preparing me. Um, so my 2024 for me, I don't know about you, but it didn't start easy for me. I began the year uh, down with influenza B. And it spread to my kids. So a whole household, my whole household, my whole family, um, high fevers, vomiting, sleepless nights. In the midst of this, like, uh, and tensions were high, stress was high, tempers were lost uh, <laughs> many times. In the midst of all this, in the wider body of a cathedral, ministry was heavy. Um, we've had many funerals. We're still having many funerals. Um, many joy, uh, many sadness and much joy as well. There were weddings a lot of weddings. And on top of that, ministry for 2024 was kicking off. But friends, I was not in a good place. I wasn't standing strong. I was so weak. Uh, I was on my knees. Uh, but I was comforted. I was reminded of this one verse in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, Jesus' compassion, his presence with us is felt most strongly, not when we are standing strong, but when we are weak, when we are on our knees, when we have no, hit, when we hit rock bottom. And uh, I, I want to thank God that my family has recovered. Um, the storm, I guess, has passed in ways. But let me tell you, one tangible way, one very real way I've experienced Jesus holding on to me was by his word, by pointing me to that his, his truth. That his grace is enough. His power is shown in my weakness. 
that he's leading me this truth for a purpose. That who shared this verse with me? It was a brother. Someone who was in my life, walking with me, that shared me this verse in the time that I needed comfort. I, I was so down and out that I was not able to be at church the first Sunday of the year. And, and, and my, 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 my colleagues, the pastoral team, stepped in to fill in and help me. And, and, and they were uh, community, church community, who knew of my situation, were praying over me. Friends, none of us should face the storm alone. None of us can face the storm alone without facing despair. We need each other. Yes, our greatest need is God. But the means by which God has given us to remind us of Him is each other. Friends, we need to be pointing each other to God, to Jesus, our compassionate Emmanuel, who provides and delivers and last but not least, we see that Jesus not just delivers us from the storm, but the Bible also tells us that he delivers us from death. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, but that God rose him from the grave. And friends, if today you don't know Jesus as your Lord, I want you to know that Jesus loves you, he has compassion for you, and he desires that you turn to him, that you trust him. If you come to him in your desperation, Know that he will save you from your sins. That even though death may come for you, as it does for us all, those who are in Christ will rise with him because he is always with us. For the rest of us who do believe in Jesus, let us remember his mighty displays of his power, how he conquered death itself, and that he is with us. And if he is for us and with us, who can be against us? If we know that Jesus is our Emmanuel, that he can provide and that he delivers and he is with us, friends, the waves and the storms of this life only seek, serve to drive us to our Emmanuel. And that's how Matthew closes his gospel. He began introducing Jesus as the Emmanuel. And in Matthew 28, verse 20, he ends, Behold, Jesus tells his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is nothing, friends, that can separate us from the love of Christ. My, one of my favorite verses from Romans 8, verse 35 to 39 reads, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, let us remember that Jesus is our compassionate Emmanuel who provides and delivers us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your mighty power, your transcendence is displayed through your imminent compassion for us, that you are with us in our weakest times. Help us to realize our desperate need of you. Help us to, to realize how you will use us in what little we give you to reach out to those around us. 
We thank you that Jesus is Emmanuel and help us to turn to him, to trust him, to, to, to turn to him away from the distractions of this world, to allow the, whatever storms we face to only drive us to Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.